Welcome to Hard Talk on the BBC World Service with me, Stephen Sacker. My guest today is one of America's most globally recognised politicians. For the last 18 years, Stephen Sacker has hosted Hard Talk, the BBC World Service's flagship interview program, where he puts difficult questions to world leaders, titans of industry, scientists, philosophers and cultural icons to discuss major issues facing the world. Before Hard Talk, Sacker cut his teeth in the field as a foreign correspondent. He covered the first Gulf War on the ground with British troops, was the BBC's man in Cairo and later Jerusalem, and in 2010 was named International TV Personality of the Year by the Association of International Broadcasters. Stevens built a reputation for impartial, unbiased journalism by squarely engaging powerful international figures along frank lines of inquiry. He speaks truth to power. And he doesn't pull many punches. Well, John Kerry, welcome to Hard Talk. We have laid the framework and the groundwork. And Mr. That, Secretary, what yeah. happens if people no longer believe you? The problem is you've lost a lot of your teeth. On the contrary, I think, I think like hard talk, they're hard as nails. I'm joined from Moscow by Sergei Karagan. Welcome to Hard Talk. Good afternoon. You say it's a matter of life or death at the moment for many tens of thousands of Russian men in military uniform. It is a question of death, isn't it? Nancy Pelosi joins me now. They support Joe Biden. We'll see Joe Biden's mental and physical health. They are drawing conclusions. Clear majority say he is too old, he should not run. My guest today, Imran Khan, is, according to the opinion polls, comfortably Pakistan's most popular politician. You have a choice. You either try to run or you back off because it could send Pakistan over the edge. What are you going to do? From the outside, Mr. Khan, it looks as though a legal noose is tightening around your neck. Does it feel that way to you? Stephen and I sat down at BBC headquarters at New Broadcast House in London on Monday, shortly after he'd walked off set and kicked off our discussion talking about the guest he'd just interviewed. Well, good afternoon, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me into the BBC headquarters here in London today. Yeah, well, Jack, it's a pleasure to see you. Who did you have on Hard Talk today? I've just come out of the studio. I actually just finished today's Hard Talk interview. Today's guest was a guy called Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, who is a Palestinian politician. He's actually a medical doctor as well and a civil rights activist. He's a very interesting figure because throughout his career, he's stood for a a sort of independent uh, position in the Palestinian territories. He's not Fatah, the main group behind the Palestinian Authority. He's certainly not Hamas. He has always advocated nonviolence, but right now he and so many other Palestinians are in an extraordinarily difficult position trying to make sense of, of uh, you know, a Palestinian national stand against what Israel is doing, but also having to try to somehow come to terms with what Hamas did on October 7th. So there's a very interesting sort of political challenge facing Palestinians right now. Mm. And I definitely want to get into that uh, when we discuss the Israel-Hamas conflict in more detail later on. But first, I'd love to rewind a bit 
Um, you've been at the BBC since 1986, and over that period, you've covered some very important geopolitical moments. The end of the Soviet Union in the 80s, Desert Storm, where I believe you were on the ground with British troops. Yep. Uh, later, you were the BBC's correspondent in the Middle East and then Washington. Um, in 2010, I know that you were voted the International TV Personality of the Year. God help me, yeah. Of international broadcasters, which notwithstanding your humility does sound like quite a feather in one's cap. So what I'd like to ask is if you take a step back and look at the places you've been and the things that you've covered over your career, what has been your core ambition as a journalist over the past 35 years? Well, first, I'd say congratulations for making me feel very old. Um, <laughs> it has been quite a long career. And when you sit back and think about it, it is extraordinary that I began, yeah, when the Soviet Union was uh, still in existence and the Berlin Wall hadn't come down. Um, you know, my I, I, I was one of those strange kids, actually. As a youth, I, I actually knew what I wanted to do very early in life. I wanted to be a journalist, but more particularly, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And I guess what really drove me was a, a deep curiosity to see how other people lived their lives, what the world looked like a very long way from my home. And, and just by way of sort of delving into that a little deeper, I think it it's telling for me that I came from a very isolated rural area in the east of England. My dad was a farmer. So I grew up actually not even in a village, but in a homestead, you know, far from the village. My primary school was tiny. My secondary school was almost as tiny. And I, I you know, didn't really travel very far out of Lincolnshire, the county I was born in, until I was, you know, mid to late teenage. So I, I, but I was a voracious reader and I was very preoccupied with current affairs, even as a kid. My dad used to get the Guardian, Manchester Guardian newspaper, and I used to read that. And I watched a lot of TV news. And I just became convinced as an adolescent that I, I wanted to see the world, I wanted to report the world. And I, I guess I wanted to bear witness to, you know, important and extraordinary things that were happening very far from my home. And miraculously, it came good for me, you know, after a lot of toing and froing, I, I found myself in my 20s able to live that particular dream. So I was very lucky. Mm. And over that period, including both your overseas postings and, and bearing that witness on the ground all the way through to what you do today, mm. are there any particular stories, interviews or people that stick out to you as being very important over the course of your career? Well, you know, I, it's very difficult after so many stories. And, and I have been hugely fortunate to witness some truly remarkable historic moments. You know, we talk about the Berlin Wall. I, I, I was lucky enough, actually, just before that uh, cataclysmic event uh, to be sent by the radio program that I worked for at the BBC at the time. So I was in my mid-20s at the time. I happened to be sent to East Germany, uh, got a visa on assignment when the wall came down. So I rushed from, I think I was in Dresden the, the day before, and I rushed to East Berlin and saw the world, wall come down from the east side, not from the west side. Um, so that, that will always stick in my mind. But I, funnily enough, even more striking for me, and one of the most truly emotional moments of my journalistic career came a, a couple a week or so afterwards when I I hired a car from East Berlin once, you know, it was clear that the drama of Eastern Europe was not just about East Germany, but it was spreading elsewhere. I hired a car and drove uh, from Berlin to Prague. 
I remember it was snowing. I drove through the night in the snow to Prague and got there just as the huge crowds were beginning to gather every day in Wenceslas Square to call for the, uh, the, the end of communism and the regime in Czechoslovakia. And, you know, I was there when Havel came out on the balcony of the grand old building and went in Wenceslas Square and waved to the crowds and it was clear that the regime was finished. And, and the packed crowds in Prague and that sense of euphoria and joy as they knew that they were making history in their country, having seen the 68 uprising fail, but here in 89, this was it. This was the end of communism. That was absolutely one of the formative journalistic experiences in my life. I bet. And quite an interesting anchor when you look at the character and the tone of gatherings in squares in that part of the world and others these days. Yeah. And I've, you know, since then, and I've been in a lot of gatherings of one sort or another, protests and uprisings and this and that. And, you know, they're not always easy crowds to navigate. And sometimes there can be a sense of, uh, of something ominous kicking off. Uh, but that was a crowd that was really euphoric and, and joyful and victorious. And that was something special. Uh, I've been in plenty of crowds that have been full of anger and vitriol and hate where uh, there hasn't been that uplift that you know, was so important in 89. Yeah, but it does seem to me that that optimism which motivated the crowds the time that you visited Prague has been replaced with something perhaps darker uh, in terms of what people are needing to demonstrate for or against these days. So I guess the question is, at a high level, do you feel like the optimism for liberalism writ large has receded. And, and where do you think we are now in terms of our old view that liberalism would win mm. and that authoritarianism would lose? Well, it's become almost a cliche, hasn't it, to sort of mock that title of the Fukuyama book, you know, the end of history when everybody seems so optimistic, even, even convinced that sort of liberal democratic values were sweeping the world and that there was an inevitability about the continuation of that spread. Uh, for sure, um, the scales have fallen from our eyes when it comes to that sort of feeling. And, you know, if I think about stories that I cover now and places I travel to, um, you know, it, it, the world looks very different. Uh, we now have a, a, a different power structure. The United States, which seems so much the ascendant, dominant economic, military superpower of the late 80s and early 90s, well, the U.S., as we may discuss, has profound internal problems and has a very different sort of perception around the world than, than that, that it had in, in the late 80s. And, you know, we look at the geopolitical powers that now seek to rival the United States, but obviously most particularly China, but we look at other authoritarian regimes like Putin's Russia, which are determined to build a, a rival sort of power base, a, a, a global offer, which is very different from that of liberal democracy. And, you know, I suppose one of the symbols of that in, in recent years has been the Ukraine war. And, you know, the, the, the notion that the West is backing a Ukraine, which wants to follow a, a West oriented democratic path, but which as far as Vladimir Putin is concerned, is part of his sphere of influence, his neighborhood. And that for him, the war isn't just about crushing Ukraine's um, democratic aspiration. It is very much 
uh, a question of confronting the West with a, a rival order, which Putin, backed by China, is determined to to say, is more than capable of offering the world, you know, a, a different alternative future from that of the United States. Yeah. Well, let's start there with Ukraine, because I think it's obviously a very important story at the moment that you've been heavily involved in. So the first question I'd like to ask is, when you speak to Russian representatives of the state, like Maria Bettina or Sergei Karaganov, most recently, I believe, Mm. um, and they rebuff your attempts to engage on the facts of what's going on with Russia's invasion, both in terms of its motivation and justification and also in terms of what's happening on the ground. One of the things that I sense watching those interviews is fear from the interview subjects. Um, It came across very strongly when Karaganov almost shouted at you that he believed what he was saying when you asked him that question. Um, And I get a similar feeling from Maria Bettina. I wonder if that comes across to you or if you think that those subjects actually genuinely believe what they're telling you. It's difficult to say. I can't crawl into the mind of uh, an interviewee. All I would say is that what we now face, and it's it's a phenomenon that's become more and more obvious in, in the international media, is we, we, we face um, a world of, of sort of alternative facts, of people who are really not concerned anymore about being called out for lies and for provable deceptions. You know, as far as they are concerned, their truth is the truth. And it doesn't really matter what evidence I bring to bear, what proofs I give that suggest that what they are saying is a false account. Um, So whether they are fearful about being called out I, I actually question. I'm not sure they are fearful. I just think they have reached a point uh, where they don't really care anymore. They don't really care whether we, in what they would characterize as the sort of liberal America-dominated West, um, think ill of their projects, of their governing styles. The, you know, there is now a sort of, it's dialogue of the deaf in a way. And so presenting, let's take Ukraine, presenting facts which are catalogued by international institutions, including the UN and international war crimes investigators, facts about, you know, egregious human rights abuse, about the uh, extrajudicial killings, about, you know, recorded rape and abuse of civilians in, in places where Russian forces have occupied. True, it's not even just about truth, it's about um, sort of shamelessness and a a brazenness to presenting, uh, you know, an alternative to what we regard as the truth. Yeah. Uh, That's, that's where we are. Why do you think they come on your program then? Because, you know, every, uh, government, every, uh, public sort of facing representative of, of a government feels the need to make the case a platform is useful. Uh, they don't worry too much whether the audience comes away, you know, with a an impression that they did well, that they were convincing, as long as they've had an opportunity to spread their version of the truth, their information, 
then I guess they feel that they're performing a useful function. And let us be honest, there are plenty of people in the liberal West, as well as in their own countries, who are persuadable and who actually find their case compelling. You know, there just are. And, and, you know, I don't want to sound as though I feel I am the arbiter of all truths and that I'm somebody who is unimpeachable in every way. Of course, like any journalist anywhere in the world, I have been raised in a particular system. I've had a particular form of education. I have a worldview that is the result of my nature and nurture. Every single individual on this planet is not a, a blank slate simply to be filled with objective truths. They all come from somewhere and have certain attitudes which are a part of their culture and their background and upbringing. I'm very aware of that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that Stephen Sacker and the Hard Talk Show have to be regarded as some sort of absolutely objective, impartial arbiter of world events. But nonetheless, insofar as I can, I try to be guided by facts and evidence uh, but I am well aware that others interpret facts and evidence in very different ways. But in this new context, is the type of journalism that you purport more important, where you are trying to consistently hold individuals on either side of one issue down to a narrative which you believe to be mm -hmm. more rooted in fact? Does that become more important today than it was? Totally. I mean, I, I absolutely believe in it. And uh, even if it sometimes feels like banging your head against a brick wall, which it can do in some of the interviews that you've itemized, um, I absolutely believe in the worth of it. And you know why? Because ultimately, I, and this sounds trite, but I really mean it, I, I absolutely respect our audience. I don't know whether our audience, you know, I don't, our audience is international. I don't know whether, the, you know, the particular individual is receiving my show in Lagos or Moscow or Rio de Janeiro or New York City. You know, we are a truly international show, but wherever that audience is, I absolutely respect his or her ability to make judgments. And so what my job is, as far as I see it, is to collate and collect the best evidence um, as impartially as I can to make a case, present it to my interviewee, test my interviewee and challenge my interviewee, and then invite the audience to draw their own conclusion. That, that's what I'm all about. And then it's up to the audience to form their own view as to how persuasive my guest of the day is. But you do form those opinions in your own mind, notwithstanding the fact that you try to quarantine them away from the journalistic content you put out in BBC Hard Talk. Uh, right? Yeah, I mean, you, I'm a human being. Yeah. And I, I, of course, have opinions on all sorts of things, including current events and major global issues. I, I just like everybody else, I, I read lots of different news sources, I travel the world, I meet people, I talk, I gather information, and I form opinions. But the whole point of what I do is that I don't carry personal opinion uh, as, as, you know, heavy baggage into the interview. I carry, as we've established, I, I carry well-researched preparation into that interview, but I, I'm not there with a dog in the fight. Whatever my personal opinions might be, you know, the idea of, of certainly of the BBC over decades is that the journalist for the BBC 
parks his or her opinions at the door and gets on with the fact-finding. Yeah, absolutely. But in this context, I can ask you what your opinions are, right? Well, you can, but because... Uh, you might not answer, but... Because we're sitting in the BBC and I'm, whether on duty or off duty, I'm a BBC guy with a belief in the importance of the BBC's values of, uh, you know, impartiality, objectivity, fair-mindedness and independence... I, I, I'm not going to deny I have opinions, but I'm sure as hell not going to tell you all of my opinions of because, you know, that would undermine the whole point of my show. Of what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I get it. So, <laughs> but, yeah, but in the trying to not point you towards any questions that might have that effect, uh, what is your take on the current situation of the war in Ukraine based on your source network and the conversations that you've had? No, that's that's a question I can answer as you know impartially as I can as a journalist. I can tell you that I've known Ukraine for a long time. I, I've talked to many of the players in the Ukrainian government over years, and you know I've travelled to Moscow many times, but certainly not since the start of the February 2022 uh, military invasion of Ukraine, because it's very difficult now for the BBC to operate in Moscow. We have a wonderful uh, editor correspondent who is still there, but I'm not able to travel there to do interviews, at least not at the moment. What I would say is that, and I was in Kiev about um, six weeks ago, so my conversations face-to-face -face with Ukrainians have been relatively recent. I would say that uh, Ukraine is reaching a very difficult moment where it is clear that their absolutely steadfast ambition to recover every inch of sovereign Ukrainian territory is looking increasingly difficult to achieve. This year, this summer counteroffensive was obviously very important to them strategically. It hasn't delivered significant territorial gain. It has cost them a huge amount in human life. Uh, Zaluzhny, the military chief, has just said that he, he fears a long-term stalemate, such as the nature of Russia's now huge defensive buildup, the trench lines, the mines, everything else, but also, you know, Russia's capacity to mount counter-counter-offensives. So what we look at the moment at is a, is a very stalemated military situation. And in the long run, who, you know, looking at it from the outside, who does uh, stalemate on this scale uh, at this cost of life suit better? Definitely suits Vladimir Putin better than the Ukrainians. Uh, Russia still occupies close to 20% of Ukrainian territory. It's hard to see how that dynamic shifts in the short to medium term, particularly given Ukrainian fears about a weariness settling into its Western backers, mm. and more particularly the United States than anybody else. Yeah. And they don't know what's going to happen in the election in 2024 in, in the United States, but they're sure as heck worried about it. So... If you factor in all of the, the 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 military situation, the politics and diplomacy of it, I would say that just now Ukrainians are having, even if they won't do it in public, in private, they're having to confront a very difficult question. What are we prepared to settle for? What basis are we prepared to negotiate on with Russia if we are not to achieve total military victory. You touch on the point about Western support there. Do you feel that post-October 7th, the outlook for Western support, not only from the United States, but from elsewhere, has become more challenging in terms of appetite to support the Ukrainian war effort? 
Yeah, I, I, it, it's complicated. I mean, again, just in the most broad brush terms, who does it suit better if the world's attention is now focused on a conflict which is far away from Ukraine, Russia, while it suits Putin better than the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians need their Western backers to be very, very focused and committed to this idea that Ukraine's war is their war too, and that they have to back Ukraine to the hilt to ensure ultimate victory. Well, right now, Western attention is elsewhere, for sure. I mean, there is the, you know, we talked about the danger, a potential danger of a World War III breaking out as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Well, right now, World War III is on the agenda again, but not right now because of Russia, Ukraine, but because of the possible fallout and ramifications of uh, Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza and opening up of possible second and third fronts, mm. what that would do particularly to a, a U.S. involvement with Iran. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's move on to the Israel-Hamas conflict now. So you've interviewed a number of high-profile stakeholders over the past few weeks, and much of the discussion has centered around supporters of the Israeli case arguing that October 7 justifies both the blockade of Gaza and the aerial campaign being waged there. Well, and the ground campaign now. And now the ground campaign. Um, but I do sense that the ground campaign is less controversial. Um, you know, it, it does feature less in the discussion because the civilian casualties being racked up by the airstrikes are just so visceral in terms of what we're able to, to witness. Um, but on the other side of the coin, you know, most supporters of the Palestinian cause have argued that those attacks on October 7 should be viewed in the context of 80 years of oppression. As it stands today, do you think that Israel's response to the October 7 attacks is proportionate or disproportionate? Well, this is where it's really important for me to uh, present myself as a, a very active BBC journalist. So, you know, rather than opine on that and give you an opinion, because you've just asked me for my opinion mm. and I'm not going to give it to you. All I'm going to say is, you know, you, like everybody, can listen to what uh, Israel's justifications are. You can listen to the reaction of the UN Secretary General. Mm -hmm. You can take on board how the Americans and backers of Israel characterize what they believe Israel has a right to do but not to do, i.e., you know, the very careful statements that Israel has an absolute right to self-defense, but Israel also must adhere to international humanitarian law and the laws of war. Mm. Um, now, of course, it all, in the end, comes down to a matter of interpretation. Um, and while I'm not going to step into that giving you my own interpretation, I, I will just say that as time goes on, and the death toll mounts. And as we speak to each other today in London, you know, the Ministry of Health in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, now puts the official death toll from uh, the beginning of Israel's military operations in Gaza at beyond 10,000. Yeah, I saw that. So, you know, we are talking about a, a stunningly, horrifyingly high loss of life. And, you know, it is said by, again, by the Ministry of Health that 40% of that number could be children. So th th this is, this is unbelievable. 
death toll. You know, and it compare. You know, if you compare it with the civilian death toll in Ukraine over more than two, uh, well, not more, but almost two years of war, you know, th- th- this is of a different order in terms of the the speed and scale of death. And as lo- you know, as as we come to terms with that in the international community, there is no doubt that the pressure on the Israeli government mounts. I'm not going to give you an opinion. But I am going to point out that that the pressure mounts, and the Israelis know that. Yeah. Um, and everything becomes a balancing act. You know, they are determined to keep this operation going. Netanyahu says he won't countenance even a pause or a lull, as long as Hamas doesn't unconditionally release those two hundred and more hostages who were taken into Gaza and are being held in Gaza by Hamas, that unless they are released, he won't even talk about a lull, let alone a ceasefire. Um, so that's where we are. But but Israel is very well aware that the international concern about that death toll ratchets up every day. What vectors do you see for the conflict to escalate regionally? Well, uh, the, the, the key player really in all of this uh, outside of Israel and Hamas is Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the United States, of course, and Iran. Those are the two key players that that hold the key as to you know where this goes next if it goes far beyond the borders of Israel Gaza. Uh, my, uh, you know, again, like everybody, I listened carefully to what uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, said in his big set piece speech last week. And if you boil it right down and cut out the rhetoric, what he, in essence, appeared to be saying was, this was an absolute Hamas operation. We did not know of it beforehand. We will continue our long-term resistance against Israel, but we do not intend, as of right now, to go to war with Israel in Hamas's defense. Uh, I can't imagine how that went down amongst Hamas leadership, but certainly amongst Israelis and probably the United States, there was something of a breath of relief. Mm. It doesn't look as though Hezbollah intends right now to open up a full-fledged second front on Israel's northern border. And in the end, when we're talking about Hezbollah, we're really talking about the people who fund, arm, and back Hezbollah in Tehran. Do the Iranians want a second front, which would raise very immediate and serious questions about a U.S. military response, which is directed not just at Hezbollah, but at Iran itself, alongside the Israelis, of course, because no question, if, if Hezbollah launched that, huge rocket attack and that second front opened up, Israel would pound Lebanon straight away. To quote the Israeli defense minister from a couple of months back before October 7th, he said, if that ever happens, we will take Lebanon back to the Stone Age. So that's the mentality in Israel, that Lebanon as a country would pay the price if Hezbollah launches a major attack from Lebanese territory. And once you think about Lebanon being under all-out attack from Israel, it's not then very far to imagine that Iran would get more heavily involved because it needs its Hezbollah proxy and it needs that platform in Lebanon. Uh, and then if Iran gets more heavily involved, every likelihood that the U.S. with its two aircraft carrier battle groups in the eastern Mediterranean would then 
activate too. And then we would be talking about a massively dangerous spillover. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you that the incremental news flow and particularly stuff that's come from your show, um, frankly, has seemed a point to that being less likely. I, I think so. I mean, we spoke to the Lebanese foreign minister, uh, not that, you know, he ultimately <laughs> controls anything that Hezbollah does. Right, which is what he said. That was his whole oh, it's fascinating. there was, we've got no control over them, yeah. which is which is a you know hard thing to know whether or not oh, that's true. I mean, true, it's, right? it's one of these fascinating sidebars to this story that here is Lebanon, which, you know, sort of flaunts to the world its helplessness. Because, you know, it wants to signal, you know, what Hezbollah does is not our doing. And it also wants people to understand that, you know, whatever Hezbollah does, please don't hit us and destroy our economy and destroy our people. But the fact is, whatever he says, uh, Israel will, you know, hit Lebanon very hard if and when this second front opens up. But I think as we speak, you know, and things can change on a dime, but as, as we are talking to each other, it, it looks as though there is not the intent, uh, the, the will in Hezbollah or in Tehran to see this full-fledged uh, second front open up. If you could interview anybody in the world on this particular subject, um, who do you think would be the most valuable in terms of gleaning an additional insight. Imagine that there are no barriers to anybody coming on Hard Talk. Well, I, you know, I, I think it, it would, I'm trying to think who in the Iranian regime would possibly engage with a show like Hard Talk, but it would be very good to talk to the Iranians. Um, I, another player in this that we haven't mentioned, but is very significant right now is Egypt. And uh, I lived in Egypt. I know Egypt quite well. And I, you know, the, the current regime in Egypt is not media friendly in any way. But um, the former military chief turned president of Egypt, uh, Sisi, would be a fascinating guy to have on Hard Talk right now. He needs his relationship with the United States. But he also knows his people are massively supportive of the Palestinian cause right now. He also is absolutely desperate not to see an exodus of Gazan refugees enter Egyptian territory. I mean, there's no way that he would countenance that, just as Palestinians don't want to be turned yet again into refugees from their homes. The Egyptians absolutely do not want to host them. So Egypt is under enormous pressure right now. Uh, so he'd be a fascinating interview. And then, of course, you know, you you always want to talk to the Americans who who hold so many of the keys to what happens next. Um, how much you know? If you were talking to Blinken or indeed to Biden, God knows it's unlikely I'd be given a one on one with Joe Biden right now for all sorts of reasons. But <laughs> but but you want to know behind the scenes what are they really saying to the Israelis and to Netanyahu, who for years, by the way, the Americans have been deeply suspicious of. Right. And yet, you know, Biden finds himself offering um, Netanyahu his four-square, undiluted support. We've got your back. We are with you. We stand by your right to mm. defend yourselves in the way you see fit. That was his message from the very beginning after October 7th. But also, behind the scenes right now, you can be sure the Americans are saying, there are lines you must not cross. Um, and you need to get this done as soon as possible because this is harming our ability 
states project power on your behalf in the Middle East, in the wider Middle East. Yeah. And it, by the way, in brackets, for Joe Biden, it is also deeply harming my chances of re-election. Yes. <laughs> so yes. you better think, you know, th please think very carefully, Mr. Netanyahu, about what your next move is. Did you see the new polling out on I did. Biden today? What do you make of it? Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and from a Democratic Party point of view, deeply worrying. Mm. I mean, here we have Trump again in a courtroom, again having to testify, you know, under enormous pressure with questions about his business dealings as well as all of his behaviors with regard to January 6th and everything else. You know, a guy who's facing 90-plus criminal charges in four different trials plus this civil suit in New York, and yet his poll ratings just keep on improving, particularly in the swing states. So the latest polling, which is about six of the most important swing states, suggests that he's got a significant lead now over Biden. Uh, in all but Wisconsin, right? Yeah, and, right. And interestingly, like the additional nuance to the polling data, from my perspective, was that when they ran the same questions against a generic Democrat, the numbers are all in four, three, four points in favor of the Dems, right? Which is, you know, it's inevitable that in the next few weeks and months, this question mark within the Democratic Party, how do we... Uh, address the Biden problem? And do we just suck it up and put him out there because he's the incumbent and, you know, frankly, there's no plan B? Or do we have the courage to confront our own sitting president and say to him, everything points to you being a loser for us? Uh, it, you know, there are... Uh, a few Democrats on the Hill in Congress who are already saying we have to confront this. And I think there's one congressman who's already said he's going to sort of run a campaign against Biden. Yeah, I had him on my show about a month ago. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, Dean Phillips is his name. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm actually heading to Washington in a few days' time, and I'm going to interview one of Biden's closest political friends, Senator Chris Coons, yeah. who's his sort of partner from Delaware. And I think is going to run Biden's campaign. That's the idea for mm. re-election. But the question for Chris Coons is: Can this stand? You know, can Biden's position hold when the polling may well get even worse yeah. over the next few weeks? It occurs to me that both parties seem to be missing an opportunity to get the first mover advantage on what is an inevitable generational change, mm. right? Um, both for the reason that the anointed people are very old, um, but, you know, for other reasons too, you know, whichever party ran, runs a new candidate and, and neither may should win this election. It's a really interesting proposition. Uh, I mean, there's an awful lot of inertia and there's some fear in politics. It's not easy to go to the guy who actually sits in the Oval Office and say, <laughs> Mr. President, we, we've come to tell you, you're a loser for us and we need to move on. Yeah. And you're going to have to find a way to fall on your own sword. Yeah. And equally, you know, if you're confronted with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago as a Republican, particularly a Republican who looks at the polls and sees that Trump potentially can win this election quite handily, it's very difficult to go to Trump and say, uh, Trump, Mr. Trump, you know, we, we respectfully think you should back out. And anyway... Donald Trump's not the kind of character you could possibly do that. It would just simply fire him up even more. And, and also, he owns the party now. I, I think the, the, the question with the Democrats is more interesting because Biden doesn't own the party. 
with the Republicans, in a sense, they're too far in now. They, feels, they're too far it in. It feels like the loyalty to both men arises from different motivations. The loyalty towards President Biden, it feels to me, is one about genuine party loyalty to totally. the leader. And Trump, it's, it's, I think the party is being faithful to the polling numbers and they're worried about alienating his base. Oh, for sure. I mean, Donald Trump's great skill is building the most committed political base you've ever seen. You know, some, I again, I'm going to be careful, but some would say it looks like a cult. You know, mm. it it, it, the the loyalty is to the man. It's not it's not to any ideology or, or or the Republican Party. It is to Trump. They are profoundly, deeply loyal to Trump and will do, frankly, whatever it takes to get him back. Um, with Biden, yeah, it's a it's a different set of motives. I think there's there's respect. There's a there's an awkwardness about how do you deal with this situation with a guy who, you know, Democrats would say hasn't been a bad president. There's some achievements there on the economy, on his massive sort of infrastructure and investment program. You know, he's done some stuff that Democrats like. And and he's, you know, he's been a player in the party for a long time with a network of, of you know, sort of supporters and people who owe him. But uh, equally, many in his party can see that to put it bluntly, is well past his prime, uh, and the American public can see that. And and the question is, can anybody convince Joe Biden himself that he's not good for his party? Because I think there isn't. I don't think Donald Trump gives a hoot about the Republican Party, uh, but Joe Biden definitely cares about the Democratic Party. So if he can be convinced that we've reached a point where he truly is damaging the party's prospects, then maybe he can be convinced to think. Yeah, it might be too late. It's also disadvantageous to any challenger just because there is no real proper structure for a challenger to emerge for an incumbent president, right? It's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. It's very difficult. And, you know, names that are out there all have significant downsides. Uh, You know, whether you be the governor of California, which, you know, for some in America is a, an immediate exclusion. Why the hell would we vote for a Californian? Yes. So, so you know, it, it's not easy. None of this is easy, but, but polls, consistent polls speak very powerfully. And, and the prospect of losing focuses minds. So let, let's see where we are in a month or two or three. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk quickly about one issue which will loom large in the upcoming U.S. presidential election, which again is on foreign policy, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I believe you mm. covered Desert Storm on the ground. Yeah, I, I did. I, I, well, I was there. I've covered a lot of ground in the Middle East. I was the Middle East correspondent living in Cairo, and then I lived in Jerusalem, and I was a cub reporter uh, embedded with the British Army in what we now sort of call Gulf War One, when Saddam invaded Kuwait and the American-led coalition booted him out of Kuwait. And then uh, in 03, I was no longer in the Middle East. I was actually reporting from Brussels, from Europe. But I was sent back to cover the aftermath in Iraq of uh, the toppling of Saddam. And uh, yeah, I've got a long sort of connection with the Middle East, less so with Afghanistan. But of course, I mean, I was actually in America. I was reporting from America during the whole 9-11 thing. So I've, I've an awareness of the degree to which post 
you know, the midi the fate of Afghanistan and the Mideast was sort of tied together by an American determination to, you know, as George Bush, George W. Bush uh, would say, you know, take on the, the war on terror and tackle the evil doers wherever they were. And as far as he was concerned, that was number one, Afghanistan. But of course, he was convinced that America had a duty to go into Iraq too, which many would then see as a major error, but it happened. Yeah. Even on his, among his persuasion, I, I believe that Iraq in the rearview mirror has a more contentious uh, legacy than, than Afghanistan, even given what's yeah, happened. I mean, the initial, you know, uh, reasons given for going into Iraq don't really stack up anymore. I mean, they never really did, but the whole WMD thing obviously was debunked in the end. But also, you know, Post 9-11, there was this feeling that, well, even if we can't prove Saddam were involved in 9-11, he's the kind of guy who might have been and therefore he needs removing. There was this determination to sort of... Post 9-11, you know, America felt itself to be threatened, to be at war with an awful lot of people, mostly in a region they didn't truly understand, which was the wider Mideast, and let's include Afghanistan sort of in that. And, you know, there, there was an hysterical sort of febrile atmosphere in Washington at the time. Yeah. So those experiences of covering, um, you know, Gulf War one and two, uh, in fact, I, I believe you wrote a book, right? On the Basra road. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a book early and then didn't write another one. Yeah. Incidentally, I hope that you kept a few copies of that laying around. <laughs> Have you seen what those uh, things are going for on amazon.com? Somebody told me, I think maybe you told me, but other people have told me too. <laughs> Asked him, yeah, we, we saw that you'd written this book. And I just wanted out of curiosity to get hold of a copy and it was going to be like, a hundred or hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, it wasn't me because I I deliberately didn't tell you that I'd seen it to uh, try and to, to mention in the interview. But I think they're up to four hundred. <laughs> yeah, the print run wasn't huge, and uh, I guess it did sell out. And now, yeah, to get a copy, you've got to spend a lot of money, which I hastily say you really shouldn't bother. <laughs> so it's definitely not worth four hundred dollars. But you know, those experiences, jokes aside, um, how did seeing a war zone up close? change you both as a person and as a journalist? Well, I, I have in the end seen quite a lot of wars, but I guess Gulf War One exposed me to the most horrific things I've seen. And in one particular, and it was the title of my book, actually, On the Basra Road, I, I was the journalist, one of the, in the party of a few journalists who were the first to get to this truly horrifying scene on the main highway out of um, Kuwait City toward Basra as uh, U.S. forces were closing in on Iraqi uh, forces in Kuwait City. And the last people who were living in Kuwait City who could escape were desperate to escape. And it included some Iraqis, but a lot of foreign nationals who were workers who'd become trapped in Kuwait City, uh, all just desperate to flee and get out of this advancing uh, U.S.-led military force and a, and a war, you know, they just didn't want to be caught up in the war. So they, 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 they just got in their vehicles, they tried to get out and they were trapped in a, it was described by one U.S. commander as a turkey shoot where U.S. planes just circled over this highway uh, out of um, Kuwait City on the road to Basra and just shot up hundreds and hundreds of vehicles 
Uh, and they didn't, frankly, care whether civilians were in there or fleeing Iraqi troops. They just decided to obliterate this convoy. And we got there very soon after the um, airstrikes had finished. And all you saw, uh, frankly, as far as the eye could see, was just burning, wrecked, obliterated vehicles with charred bodies within. Sometimes, you know, if they'd missed a vehicle or had only been partially struck, the engine would still be running and it would be this eerie sound of car engines, uh, a few screams, but frankly, almost all just death and and but not even you know not even human bodies anymore mostly just just toasted remains of people in their cars and it was shocking and i was young you know i was this was i know i was 27 years old and this was the first i'm trying to think if i'd seen a dead body before but this this was something like you could not imagine and uh of course, things like that stay with you, and they are traumatizing. Um, they're also, as a journalist, part of your work. You know, I got on, I set my sat phone up, and I was describing the scenes to my uh, editors and my programs back in BBC London. And and you know, I have to be very honest with you. You know, this was this was. An extraordinary story, which in a way, as a journalist, you know, you live for these stories and you, you have that conflict within you that you're seeing, you know, you're on the ground, you're there. It's not like something that you're seeing on a screen. You are literally by the side of this road amid all of this death and suffering and you are reporting live to London and your adrenaline is surging and you're aware that you're on top of the biggest story in the world at that particular time. And it's a learning experience. You know, you have to reflect on it later, you know, how to make sense of it, how to find some sort of moral clarity and purpose in it. Because uh, you need to do that. You need to believe that what you did was okay. Do you think that that's something that motivates you today in your work? I think, um, I mean, I have a different job now, but I think overall, if you look at the span of my journalistic career from that on the ground reporting, even war reporting to now, you know, going around the world, uh, grilling people of power and influence, uh, I, you know, I think the thread through it all is just a belief in the importance of, of bearing witness and being the eyes and the ears of, of the audience. You know, I, I, as a young person, when I wanted to be a journalist, I just was a voracious consumer of news. I believed in the importance of knowing what was going on. And I still believe in the importance of knowing what was going on. And you can only know what's going on if there are some people, you know, professional journalists who are prepared to go out there and whether it be, you know, risk their life in a war zone or whether it be sort of risk their dignity in a in an interview with a powerful person who may not want to play ball. But either way, you know, you rely on these professional journalists to give you a sense of what is going on. And I do believe in that. I, you know, I think it's part of the human condition that we're we're much better off as a species if if we have information and if we know kind of what's going on around us. Yeah. And I think that's a very good segue to discuss journalism more broadly and writ large. Um, 
obviously there's some challenges at the moment in being a reporter. Um, we touched on the disinformation and mm. sort of the, the, the deafness of, of different sides talking to one another on, on different issues. But stepping back a bit further, do you think right now that journalism as a challenge is harder or more easy than when you started out? Uh, I think it's in many ways it's harder. It, it, it's harder because um, there's much less consensus about you know what facts are mm. and how much they matter and how evidence is uh, presented and used. And um, social media obviously has changed things enormously. And you know, in in the old days, I say old days, you know, thinking back over the span of my career to the time I started in the 80s and early 90s, um, that, uh, journalism was a more hierarchical business. And, you know, there were fewer news and information suppliers, and there was uh, a more sort of passive relationship with your audience in a way. You disseminated the news and information, and your audience sort of you know, consumed it, relying and trusting that you were being as accurate as you could be. I mean, that sounds like a different age now. You know, the the age of the internet, a digital revolution, and a, particularly of social media means that there's much less acceptance of hierarchies. Um, that all sounds deeply sort of patronizing and, you know, controlling. And anybody can disseminate information, pose as a journalist or a sort of information provider. Um, and it's very hard now for people, including me, but everybody, it's very hard if you sit on your X feed, Twitter feed, or you sit on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It's very hard to know what you can trust, what information is reliable and verifiable and what is not. Um, and that that's changed an awful lot. So, you know, in my early days, we talked about the fall of communism. There were many places you could go in the world. And as a journalist, it was very hard to work because you were controlled, you were followed. I remember, you know, as a Mideast correspondent working in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, it was, it was a truly scary place to be a journalist. You were constantly followed. You knew that if you stepped out of line, you th the very least you could expect was a night in jail, if not something much, much worse. You know, those realities of the difficulty of being a journalist have, uh, are prevalent then and now. You know, you, if I were to operate in Moscow today, it would be very difficult, or Beijing, or a whole host of other places. R repression of, of journalism is not new, but what is new is this whole sort of um, environment of, of uh, doubt and uncertainty about what is verifiable, what is real, what is fake. That, that's new. Yeah. You interviewed some experts on artificial intelligence. Um, do you, or are you concerned about how the marriage of social media that you touch on with there, the access to each individual voter, um, along with metadata on where they live, what they care about, et cetera, it, married with AI, are, are you concerned about this getting worse, about disinformation and misinformation becoming more of a problem, not less of a problem? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, 
in in all societies, you know, uh, we know that uh, malign actors see huge opportunities, particularly at election time, in in spreading disinformation, in manipulating voters' minds. Um, you know, we 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 know it's happening. Uh, we know that certain countries investing huge resources in in this you know some of them very repressive regimes in in russia and china and iran but we know that in our own western liberal countries too there are plenty of actors who want to manipulate minds and who want to you know try and sow doubt and uncertainty and spread information which is actually misinformation uh, this is coming at us from many angles and many sides, and it makes it, it, you know, what it does. I think is put an onus on us all. As this is leaving my journalistic hat off and just putting my citizen's hat on, it leaves all of us with a a really much greater sort of responsibility to think very hard about how we consume information. You know where we get the sources of our information from. Have we sort of check them? Have we tried to verify? Do we seek a second source? You know, we're all in a way required now to be curators of information in ways that we were not 30, 40 years ago. And, and that's a big ask. You know, that's not easy. And frankly, most of us don't have time. And many of, many of us live in echo chambers on our social media sites where we actually just like to hear opinions that are pretty much like our own. So I'm not sure that we, and this is a point about global citizenry, not just about people living in the UK or the US or Russia or anywhere else. Are we as global citizens prepared to make that extra effort to curate our information flows in ways that we've never done before? In the face of people that are trying to actively evade that, right? I mean, it is really, oh, really sure. difficult. Uh, for sure. We, we have to accept, I think everybody now should think, there are people out to manipulate me. And, and, you know, it's not just about our political choices. It's about our economic choices, about what we want to buy, what, what, where we want to go on holiday, also, you know, all sorts of micro choices. Every, there are huge forces out there in every aspect of our economy and political life and social life who, frankly, gain by manipulation. And, and we have to be aware of that. It's just, I'm afraid, it's just the where, where we are and what we have to accept as a new reality. But, but the only response to it is to think very carefully about every source of information that you get and think, you know, can I verify it? Is the, how reliable is this? Whose interest is this in? Where is it coming? I mean, I don't, you can't spend all your time doing this, but you owe it to yourself to think harder than ever before. I'm struck by the fact that that, new dynamic that you've just identified where individuals have to pass this fire hose of content mm. in order to try and, you know, mm. figure out which piece of it is relevant. That strikes me as both, you know, a risk, but also an opportunity to the BBC or to you or to journalists who, you know, in general. How do you see that in terms of where it places your oh. reporting? Oh. No, I think you're right. It, it's a challenge and an opportunity. And the opportunity is uh, to try to persuade people through our actions and our you know, journalism and the quality of our content that we remain a trusted provider. You know, trusted, I, I've just told, in a sense, I've just told global citizens not to trust, but to always seek to verify. 
Um, but, but, you know, over time you do get to trust those who consistently seem to be offering you independent, impartial, fair-minded information. And so, you know, that, that, that's an important space in the information environment. And if the BBC can occupy that space and win people's trust, uh, and, you know, I would argue over decades, long before the invention of, of, uh, the internet, the BBC had a strong reputation yeah. for, you know, fair-minded, independent, objective content. And frankly, still does. And, and hopefully still does. And so that, you know, becomes more important than ever. And that becomes, you know, to coin the cliched phrase, the USP of the BBC more than ever. And that's why, you know, our bosses, my bosses, are so intent on boosting our verification procedures. And we have whole journalistic units now working on, um, you know, open source journalism and trying to verify in new ways the information that we are receiving in-house it, it's a huge area i mean it, it's it's one of the most important pillars of 21st century journalism mm. Stephen, we've got a couple of minutes left so i want to finish with a couple of fun questions Go on. um and one perhaps you can answer these with your half of your journalist and half of your civilian hat on because I'm not trying to get yeah, anything yeah. salacious. But <laughs> if if you could interview anybody in the world right now, yeah, who would you like to interview? Well, it's uh, some of the funny, I'm going to answer it in a roundabout way. Some of the best interviews I've ever done have been with people I didn't really expect to be the standout interviewees. Mm. So by definition, this answer would probably w w would yield disappointment. You know? <laughs> but uh, in a funny sort of way, I'd have to go back to Donald Trump. I met Donald Trump when I was a total cub reporter in my early days at the BBC, where I was actually a producer, and I went to produce an interview with this property guy in New York called Donald Trump. And uh, he was even then a pretty out there, remarkable in lots of different ways character. And I didn't quite know what to make of him. And now here we are all these years later, and, uh, you know, my my we discussed the 24 election. My feeling is that Donald Trump has a very strong fighting chance right now of being president of the United States again in November 2024. And uh, it's never going to happen because the last thing on earth that Donald Trump would agree to do is sit down with me for 25 minutes. But if in this fantasy world he were ready and willing to do it, uh, I still would like my go with Donald Trump because I've met him, but I've never interviewed him and I would like to do it. And here's my last question. In that hypothetical fantasy world where Donald Trump does sit down, what's your first question for him? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You, you have great first questions, Stephen. Well, I, I, yeah, but then I get you time, have to, time think to think them. about them. <laughs> and now I'm sitting here thinking, oh, this is desperate. I haven't got time to formulate a real killer first question. Uh, just, just, to, just to throw him off his guard, I might say to him, Mr. Trump, why throughout your, you know, very public career if you thought it wise to to appear orange in, a, <laughs> in every interview you know it might just get him it might not be a question he was expecting might throw him off guard i would say that would throw him off guard would, and i we i'd say you know what we'll take it from there uh steven thank you so much for sitting down with me i've really enjoyed uh talking to you jack it's been a real pleasure thanks for coming over to london <laughs> all the best cheers that's it for this episode of The Intersection. I'm Jack Wright. I'm a contributor to The Washington Post and The Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. 
As ever, thank you for listening. And I look forward very much to seeing you again in December.